Good evening, church. How are you guys doing this evening? How are you guys doing this evening? All right, we're going to need some more because, as Simone said, we know we've been stuck inside, many of us, for the past two days, and we got out after the storm. If you are new to Miami in the past couple months or year, welcome. This happens often, and especially in the Brickle downtown area. If there's a big storm coming, just leave your car in the garage. Do not plan to go anywhere. We don't want to see you on only in Dade with your car stranded in the middle of the road, okay? It floods. It goes by quickly. But this is life in Miami in the summer months, and uh, we are just happy that we're able to be here this evening and that the storm passed through. Also, I'm going to need, as Simone said, some energy from you all tonight because it is Pentecost Sunday, and you can't just be like, you know, sleeping at the wheel on Pentecost Sunday, okay? And we're going to share a little bit about that later in our service and have a unique opportunity uh, to pray over someone and send them out on a mission this summer as on the day of Pentecost, uh, the disciples were sent out as the Holy Spirit came and sent them out to birth the church. So I also want to give a big congratulations to many of the graduates in the room. Could we give a round of applause for those graduating this weekend? Many different types of graduations happen, especially uh, med school and residency, and many of you that are doctors, it's not just med school, the residency, it's this specialty and then that specialty. There's like 17 graduations because you guys like to stay in school for a long time. I don't know why, but it's like, oh yeah, doctors always complain, I'm in school for so long, but you keep choosing more school. It's just staying in it longer and longer, and so because you guys love to learn, I wanted to give you guys a little summer reading. You know, remember that back in the day, summer reading? So in the back, if you want to pick up a copy, um, I think they're, they're for sale at cost. This is a book about the Apostle Paul. So we've been going through this series called The Race, Tracing the Life of the Apostle Paul. Uh, this book is written by a theologian that I love, Michael Bird, uh, from Australia. And this book is a great introduction into the life, the ministry, the habits um, the patterns, the beliefs of the Apostle Paul. So if you want the series to continue this summer because next week is our series finale, grab a copy of this, put it by your bedside table, and read it this summer. It's, I highly, highly recommend it. So as I said, next week we are closing our series in the race, tracing the life of the Apostle Paul as he calls the Christian life a race that we are to run well. Time and time again, he compares our life and the life of the church to a race. And this evening, the sermon title is What Winning Looks Like. Now, this is important because we've talked so far over the, the past five weeks about how we're to run together, not alone, that the importance of friendship. We've talked about the obstacles or the hurdles that come as we run and how we, we pass through and we run through those obstacles. We talked about starting strong and coming out of the gates and sharing your story along the race of faith. And this evening, we're going to deal with how do you evaluate whether or not you are winning in the race. Everybody here likes to win. Amen? Yeah. If, if you're like, no, then we'll have a conversation later because everybody likes to win. You want to win. It's hard for me to watch the NBA Finals because I wanted the Heat to win. Did anyone else resonate with that? I know. Some of you are from other states and your team has not won in a long time. Thinking of those from New York, New York Knicks fans. Sorry to throw the shade out there. But we want to win. We want to be able to evaluate whether or not we are winning in the race that we are running. And this evening, in Acts chapter 19... The Apostle Paul is going to reveal to us through the events that take place in Ephesus what winning looks like. 
What does it look like not only for you to know that you are winning individually as you run, but the church itself? How does the church evaluate whether or not it is winning in the race of faith? So we're going to be reading just a few verses and then referencing other parts of the chapter. So if you have your Bible, you can turn to Acts chapter 19. Or if you have the Crossbridge Brickle app, you can click on the notes section, follow along. Also, they will be, the passages will be on the screen behind me. Here's what God's word says, Acts chapter 19, verses 8 through 10. Remember, the apostle Paul is now in Ephesus. It says this, and he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So, Here's what's taken place where we left off last week. We were in Acts chapter 13, now we're in Acts chapter 19. So the Apostle Paul uh, embarked on a missionary journey with Barnabas, and he was with him through several cities throughout the Roman Empire. They eventually broke off, but the Apostle Paul continues to go on these missionary journeys to cities all across the Roman Empire. For his calling is not only to Jews, but primarily to Greeks, to non-Jewish people. He's proclaiming Jesus, he's planting churches, he's raising and developing new leaders, and he's facing, it's Pentecost Sunday. I don't know what just happened, but that got me. Uh, that, that, that's never happened, but that, that really, the word, I guess, was strong there. Something was coming through. But he also is facing a lot of persecution. He was, had an attempted stoning, he faced imprisonment, he has faced a lot of opposition. And now the Apostle Paul has landed in Ephesus. As he's in Ephesus, he does what he often does, which is he goes into the synagogue first. See, Paul resonates with the Jews. He was a Pharisee. He was a studier of Jewish law and of the Jewish faith. He was a scholar in that. And so he goes to the synagogues and he begins preaching and proclaiming Jesus and sharing his story and doing what he often does. He does that for three months, but he faces a lot of opposition. So he hits the eject button and he pulls, it says, the disciples, meaning the church, the people who believe in Jesus, not just specific people, but the church that was with him in the synagogue. He pulls them from the synagogue and they go to this place called the Hall of Tyrannus. Essentially, they rent a facility. Now, while they are there, the Apostle Paul has stationed the church now and the primary place that he teaches in this Hall of Tyrannus. And it says that they're there for two years, and all of Asia hears about Jesus, both Jew and Greek. Now, it's really important to understand what is actually taking place here. So when he goes to the Hall of Tyrannus, that would have been a lecture hall that was in Ephesus. You see, Ephesus is a city where there was a lot of philosophers, there's a lot of teachers, there's a lot of scholars, and this hall was probably the main lecture hall of, you guessed it, Tyrannus. And so they would set up times for people to come and be educated or to deal with philosophical concepts in the morning and in the late afternoon, early evening. Here's why. In the midday, 
the, the city historians have found, the city of Ephesus shut down for several hours because they had a culture of naps. Can I get an amen? So people worked in the morning. They went to these lecture halls in the morning. And then there was this siesta nap culture in Ephesus where things kind of broke down. The marketplace kind of shut down for a few hours and everybody took a nap. And then they would regain um, their steam and they'd go back to lecture halls. They'd go back into the marketplace. They'd go back to work for the afternoon into early evening. So what most scholars say is that the only way that the Apostle Paul would have been able to rent a space in the Hall of Tyrannus is if he took the time slot that nobody wanted, which was in the middle of the, in the, middle of the after, early afternoon, right around lunchtime, the time when everybody else is taking a nap and everything is shut down. Now, this is a bold move by the Apostle Paul. He's in the synagogue where there's a lot of people and a lot of activity and a lot of conversation. And he goes to this hall in a time slot that nobody wants in a time of the day when nobody is interested in engaging these ideas. But he believes in the power, the attracting power of the gospel. And as he is planted there, for two years, the gospel goes out from Ephesus and it goes to all of Asia, it says. See, a, see, Ephesus became a training ground for leaders and an evangelistic powerhouse. It's a very unlikely place for this to happen. And this all took place at this time slot in the middle of the day when Paul is inviting people to forego their naps and their comfort and come to church. Now, this gives us here uniquely uh, comfort. Why? Because some would say that 5 p.m. on a Sunday is not the most opportune time. Some of you have, have become a 5 p.m. person. I've become a 5 p.m. I love night church now. But there's a lot of people that, you know, they've just raised in a tradition, in a culture where you go to church in the morning, 10 a.m., 11 a.m. And a lot of people don't want to come to a night service. It's not the most opportune time. And we're also, like the church in Ephesus, renting from another building, from another lecture hall, if you will. And yet, the attracting power of the gospel builds this church to be a powerhouse, not just in Ephesus that transforms that city, but in all of Asia. See, I think it's important for us to remember that in a church like this, where it's set up and tear down and it's shifting this and you can't use that anymore and it's not maybe the best time slot for some people. But yet, we're not banking on the attractiveness of the time or on what the setup and the building situation is, what we are banking on is the attractiveness of the gospel. That it will call people and it will bring transformation, not just to those of us in the room and those of us online, but to the city. See, here from this hall of Tyrannus, in the middle of the afternoon where church is located, that city is changed. And the reason it's unlikely is because Ephesus was known as one of the most prominent pagan worship cities in all of the world. See, in Ephesus, they had the temple of the goddess Artemis. This temple was famous. And when I, mean, when I say famous, I mean it was regarded as one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. This is where everyone went to worship the goddess Artemis. It was a tourist destination. It was a cultural and spiritual landmark. It was four times the size of the Pantheon in Athens, made entirely out of marble. Now, this is a city that was serious about spirituality and about worship, but not worship of Jesus, worship of this goddess. And yet it becomes one of the major centers for Christianity for hundreds of years. 
Isn't that interesting? It's comforting. It's amazing. And what takes place here is not because, as I said, because of the time slot or because of the building. The building does not build a bigger church. It does not change the city. It's the people inside the building that change the city and the region. I, I, really, want you, I really want you to hear this. It's not the building. It's not the time slot. It's not how it looks. It is the people inside of the building that are focused on building not a bigger church but a better city. They want to build a better city. See, they are living out their faith, not just in that little time slot in the middle of the afternoon. They are living out their faith in the marketplace, in the other lecture halls, in their work, because it's traveling not just from Ephesus, but to all the other cities in the region. The people inside the building are living out the gospel. They are building Jesus into the city. And and here's why I want to say that is because when a church focuses on building a better city, guess what is built? A bigger church. When a church focuses on building a better city, uh, Jesus builds a bigger church. But when a church focuses on building a bigger church, guess what it builds? Opposition in the city. See, when you focus on building a better city, building Jesus into the city, the church is built because the people know you by their, your love for one another and for them. They see the gospel in action. But when you just focus on building a better building or a bigger congregation, you're going to build opposition in the city. And that is crucial to understand because the prayer for the church, not just our church, but every church should be that we want to see transformational growth, not just transfer growth. You know how a lot of churches in America grow? By transfer growth. Christians from one church moving to another church that has more programs and more attractiveness. Now, I'm not saying that God doesn't at times move people from one church to another. Even within a given city, I know that the Holy Spirit can convict someone and call someone to go and bring their gifts and their talents somewhere else. Or for some reason, God calls people to go to different churches. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. It happens. But it should happen because the Holy Spirit is moving in you and calling you to step in and to serve and to engage and to care for that church, not just to go to a place that has a little bit better music or a better program. That's transfer growth. Transformational growth is when people are meeting Jesus in the city because the church is living out its faith outside of the walls of the building and people are being transformed by the power of the gospel and they're foregoing their comfort. They're going to a 5 p.m. service. They're going to a building that doesn't have a lot of programs and a lot to offer because Jesus is attractive. That's transformational growth. And this is exactly what happens in Ephesus. They don't have everything set up perfectly for this type of explosive gospel movement, and yet it happens because the people live out their faith outside of the building, and the attractiveness of Jesus and the power of the gospel brings people to start foregoing naps all over the city and going to the Hall of Tyrannus at noon. Amazing. Leaders are developed. People begin sharing their faith as they go out of the city and they travel to all of these other cities and people are transformed. You may ask yourself, okay, how did this exactly happen? I think there's probably many ways. There's many things that they engage in, but there's one clear one that I want to share and focus on for us tonight because I think 
it has a lot of implications for how we do the same. How we are people that are not about a building, but we're about people that want to build Jesus into the city. That we take our faith and we run out of this room to our offices, to our friends, to our condos, to our neighbors, and we build Jesus into the city because our prayer is transformational growth. And here's how they did it. Through convictional living. Convictional living. Here's how I, I define that. It's living with an openness to the conviction of the Spirit leading to repentance. It's living with an openness to the conviction of the Holy Spirit leading to repentance. Another way you could say that what convictional living is, it's countercultural living. It's living opposite of culture as you allow the Spirit to convict you and bring about change or repentance in your life. Now, here's how I know that the church in Ephesus, the followers of Christ, the disciples, were living with conviction, that they were people of convictional living. Because later in Acts chapter 19, as the gospel is going forth, we read about this really disturbing event. And this disturbing event brings about widespread revival in Ephesus. Here's what happens. There's a Jewish chief, chief priest whose name is Sceva. And he has seven sons. They're regarded as the seven sons of Sceva. Now, they are not believers in Jesus. In fact, they are sorcerers. They're into spell books and sorcery. And they begin to see the power of the name of Jesus. Because remember, the church is growing. It's attracting people in this city that is known for goddess worship of Artemis. And so these seven sons of Sceva, these sorcerers, see that Jesus' name has power by the way that Paul is using it and teaching, the way that the disciples and the believers in Jesus, the church, are sharing the name of Jesus and what it's doing. And so these seven sons of Sceva say, hey, there must be some mystical power attached to Jesus' name. So why don't we try using it? Why don't we invoke it when we're doing one of our rituals and our spells? And so they're in a house, and they begin to invoke the name of Jesus on this person that is possessed by evil spirits as they're you know, putting spells out there. And it says that when they do that, the spirits leap on another man, and that man starts to beat them up. Beats them up to the point that they run out of the house naked. Okay, this is a wild experience. I told you it's a disturbing experience. So they use a weapon, the name of Jesus, that they don't believe in and they don't understand, and it comes back to hurt them. And this news, it says, travels throughout the whole city. These sorcerers who use the name of Jesus, and it backfired on them. They got beat up by this man. They got possessed by the spirits, and they ran out of a house naked. And so what happens is that people begin to realize that the name of Jesus is not something to trifle with. Then this happens. A bunch of followers of Jesus are convicted. Now, nobody knows what they're doing in private. Maybe just a few people if they're kind of in, in this secret kind of alliance together. But this group of Christians, it says many followers. So a lot of people in the church, they get convicted because they've been secretly using spell books. Because this is the type of worship they come from. They come from this pagan worship. So they have been secretly holding on to these ideologies and these philosophies and these rituals. And they hear what happens with the seven sons of Sceva. 
and they get convicted. So they gather together in the public sphere. They get all their spell books and they burn them for everyone to see. Convictional living. Openness to the Holy Spirit to convict them, leading them to repentance. This is people of convictional living. Look at verse 17 through 20 says in Acts chapter 19. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus. So that's everyone, both Jews and Greeks, that seven sons of Sceva event. And fear fell upon all of them. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it to be 50,000 pieces of silver. It's a lot of money. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. After this book-burning event... The word of the Lord in the name of Jesus begins to prevail mightily in Ephesus. There is revival that begins to take place because of these Christians living out their conviction and showing repentance for everyone to see. It says, in the sight of all. And a gospel movement is born and a city is transformed through convictional living. I want to bring an application to us out of this, and it's, it's one particular application. That's this. That convictional, the convictional living of Christians was challenging the cultural spirituality. See, there was a cultural accepted spiritual spirituality in Ephesus. Goddess worship, magical arts, sorcery, spell books. And many people were engaging these things publicly at the temple but plenty of people were obviously engaging these things privately. There was a, a private use of these things. But when they went into the public sphere and lived out their conviction, they challenged the cultural spirituality. They challenged the belief in those things as they burned their books worth a lot of money. They sacrificed those things. They offered those things. They offloaded those things. And the word of the Lord prevailed mightily. Here's the one question I want to ask. What should be challenged in our culture by the church? Don't answer that. There's a lot of things, okay? What should be challenged in our culture by the church? There's a lot of things that we could say. But specifically around our culture's beliefs around our cultural, spiritual practices and ideologies and philosophies. What is one thing that could be challenged? And I want to give you one thought, one that has kind of affected me this week and one that I've been processing personally myself. I came across this study from the CDC that said that teenage sadness and hopelessness has dramatically risen from 2009 to 2021. That in 2009, teenage sadness and hopelessness was around 25%. And in 2021, a little bit more than a decade later, that number has grown to 44%. Almost one out of every two teenagers would identify as deeply sad and feeling hopeless. 
Now, I haven't seen any studies on other demographics, but I would imagine that in particular over the past two years, that that number has grown dramatically in every category and throughout every generation. Sadness, anxiety, hopelessness, fear, that it's risen dramatically. You see, sadness, fear, confusion, hopelessness are normal for the everyday life, for the everyday person. But they're not culturally normalized. And here's what I mean by that. We may know and recognize that sadness and fear and anxiety are normal for the human experience, but we have not normalized them or accepted them, accepted them as tolerable because we have a boosted anthropology. Here is our cultural beliefs and philosophy. Here is our cultural spirituality. It is a boosted anthropology. Now, anthropology just means uh, your view on human nature, uh, that a human is such and such. So here's an example of a, a view of anthropology, a statement like, nobody's perfect. That's a statement about human nature. Or uh, you are what you manifest. These are views and statements that communicate what you believe human beings and human nature to be. So a boosted anthropology is having a very high view of the self. A very exalted and boosted view of yourself as a human being. And here's what I think that, that that's played out in our culture. That we believe that positive emotions and positive outcomes are normal. That we are meant to be positive, calm, content, happy all the time. That that is the normal, accepted place that we are to be. And positive outcomes are, are meant to be normal in our life. And yes, negative emotions happen, but we don't normalize them. We treat them. Positive emotions, positive outcomes are acceptable but negative emotions are treated, and yet we hear numbers like 44% of teenagers are feeling sad and hopeless, and we say, wait, wait, hold on a second. But it seems like sadness is very normal. It's very normal. And a lot of this is equated because we don't really want to deal with that boosted anthropology. We don't want to let that go. We want to be about positivity and positive emotions and positive outcomes for everybody. And so the thing that we do is we blame social media. It's because of social media. They grew up with social media. They're on social media too much. You know, this is, I'm like getting to that age where I'm just like, I'm blaming social media for everything. And we know the dangers of social media. There are real dangers of social media. And I think that has a big part of it, especially Twitter, right? Anybody on Twitter, you know. But here's why, here, here's, here's what it exposes. Social media isn't the only reason, but it exposes how we think our cultural spirituality. I want you to think about, if you're on Instagram or Facebook, I want you to think about your high school and college friends, okay? And I want you to think about their Instagram. What does their Instagram or their Facebook communicate? Success. Success. I'm crushing it. Everyone's always crushing it on Instagram, right? They're always beating their demons. They're always battling against those unhealthy rhythms. They're always in the gym. They have like a beautiful family. Their kids are perfect. Sometimes they're difficult, but they're perfect. Their life is happy. They have great vacations. Their Friday nights are so fun. That's what Instagram communicates. This boosted anthropology that everything's positive. There's all these positive outcomes. I'm just crushing it in life. And here's what happens. 
When you look at that, you see, think to yourself, well, hold on a second. My Instagram may look the same because I feel the need to project that positivity in the world. But if my Instagram was real, it would not look like that. Because I'm not always crushing it. I'm, I, I've been wanting to change this pattern and this, this rhythm in my life for three months. And I'm still telling myself I'm going to change it tomorrow. But I haven't done anything. That I'm not as successful as I thought I would be. That my family picture is not what I had believed and prayed for. That my Friday nights are not often fun-filled. Oftentimes it's filled with, with regret. That if my Instagram was real, it wouldn't be all positive. There would be sadness. There would be worry. There would be anxiety. There would be tears. There would be a lot of these things. But many of us feel like we're not allowed to share those things because they're not normal. They're not accepted. We feel... The only people that should be really sad are those that are diagnosed. The only people that should be really anxious are those with disorders. The only people that should feel hopeless and fearful are people with severe trauma. And, and people that have severe trauma and have been diagnosed with depression or have anxiety disorders, we, we need to care for and treat and normalize the treatment and counseling that people need. But here's what's happened. We have labeled all of these negative emotions as things that we just need to treat because we just need to get back to positivity. We just need to be positive. We need to be happy. We need to manifest positive thoughts. We have the power of positive thinking. We have all of this because then that will create a positive life and a happy life and positive outcomes. We have pathologized negative feelings, negative emotions. They have to be treated, and it's put a heavy, heavy burden on our back. And I think the last two years has only made things worse for so many people. And some of you are probably feeling like, man, this is like a really downer sermon. When is he going to get to the positivity? You know, how are you going to spend this? Because we're affected by that cultural spirituality. Here's the other side of the coin. So you have a boosted anthropology, which is what I believe is our, our cultural spirituality. The other side of that coin is a low anthropology. And a low anthropology is honest about what a person is. A person is positive at times and happy and full of joy. But a person is also sad and feeling full of fear and anxious and insecure. That a person is more dynamic than just positive emotions. They are positive, but they are also at times feeling negative, feeling down. That's a low anthropology. And here's a consolation for us, okay? The only reason that another person seems to have it all together is because you don't know them very well. The only reason that somebody that you look at seems to have everything that you want and they have it all together is because you don't know them. They have probably been so influenced by this boosted anthropology that they will not share with anyone what they really feel because they have to project this positivity and this life of success and crushing it. But that's not true. That's not reality. And here's why I want to share this train of thought. Because I want to share with you what winning looks like. Winning looks like running the race of faith and challenging this cultural spirituality. This 
boosted anthropology, that positivity is normal and accepted and negativity is to be treated. See, we are beautiful and capable and beaming with potential as human beings because we are made in the image of God. But we are also sad and broken and full of fear and anxious. We are both of those things and we have to be able to hold both of those things and deal with those things honestly. We should have a low anthropology where we are real with ourselves about who we are and with other people. That we are positive and we are calm and content and happy at times and praise God and we are maximizing potential and these things are great but we are also sometimes really anxious and really sad and really broken and really struggling. That is who we are. You see, here's why this is so important for us to challenge, not just for you individually, but for our city, for us to challenge this in our workplace and in your school and in your friend circles and in your family. Because when you challenge this and have a low anthropology and you normalize both positive and negative emotions because that is the reality of who you are as a person, you open up a pathway for transformation. Because love cannot transform what is hidden. Love cannot transform what is hidden. And we have a culture of hiding, hiding all of these things that we feel. But the power of the gospel, the power of Jesus' life and his death and his resurrection and his promises to you is found when you unlock your heart and you allow the love of God to invade. When you open up your heart, this is what would bring revival to our city, I believe. And it starts with you. It starts with you unlocking your heart and allowing the love of God to invade every emotion that you have normalizing all of those things and being honest about them, not only with your relationship with God, but with other people. It would bring revival. You know how many people in our city are exhausted by having the need to appear a certain way? To appear successful, to appear one way to their boss or their employees or their friends? Because they have to. They feel like that's normal. How freeing would it be for you to say that I, I don't have to be that way. I, I, I'm, I'm both positive and negative. I have a whole range of emotions. I have a whole range of outcomes and places in my life. And the gospel of Jesus frees me to deal with myself honestly. I've unlocked my heart. And I've allowed the love of God to come in and transform. That would bring transformation. It would bring revival. That is what winning looks like. And here's how I want to close. The only way that this can happen is if it starts both with you individually and for us as a church with prayer. But not just any prayer. With real prayer. The race of faith cannot be won apart from real prayer. I don't just mean prayers that you throw or ritual prayers that you feel the need to pray. Real prayer. Do you know that two-thirds of the psalms in Scripture are psalms of lament? Real prayers. Prayers where you've unlocked your heart to really share your real emotions with God. How you really feel. King David says to God, why have you forsaken me? 
Do you think his heart was unlocked to all the different feelings that he felt? Yes. And when you unlock your heart to God, it is a sign of your relationship with him. It is a bond of intimacy because you have a God who cares for you. And he cares for the crushed in spirit and the brokenhearted. But the love of God cannot transform what you have hidden away from God and from other people. Unlock your heart and go to God in prayer. Listen to this from Dr. Russell Moore. He's a pastor and author. He wrote in a book called Adopted for Life. He spoke about um, his journey to adopt uh, a child from Russia. Here's what he said. He describes going into the orphanage in Russia and they were in the process of pursuing adoption. He says, the silence from the nursery was eerie. The babies in the cribs never cried. Not because they never needed anything, but because they had learned that no one cared enough to answer. Children who are confident in the love of a caregiver cry. For the Christian, our lament when taken to our Father in heaven is proof of our relationship with God and our connection to a great caregiver. You see, when you pray psalms of lament, when you are honest with God about your sadness and your fear and your anxiety and the brokenness within you, it is a sign of your relationship with God. It is signaling to God that you believe that he is a great caregiver that cares for you when you cry out. In fact, just like a baby that cries out to mother or to father, it is a sign that the child needs something, that they're in pain, that they're hurting, that they're struggling, that they're sad. That's, that cry is an invitation for the great caregiver, for the caregiver to come care for the child. And the same is true. When you pray prayers of lament to God, when you're honest and you unlock your heart and allow the love of God to invade every corner and crevice of who you are, it is an invitation for God to act. In fact, in the Psalms, when there are Psalms of lament, the title that is given for that section is the Hebrew word for praises. That to, to pray prayers of lament is actually to praise, and at the end of all the prayers of lament, all, all, almost all of them, is a vow to praise God. It ends in a hallelujah. Why is that? Because when you pray prayers to God and you've unlocked your heart, you've allowed the love of God to invade, you don't have to hide. You don't have to have this elevated, boosted idea of who you are. You can normalize all of the things that you struggle with and what you feel. It, it's, a, it's a sign of your intimacy with God. You know you have a great caregiver who cares for you. And so even in the midst of your pain, you can say hallelujah. Because though you may be at times a sad person, you are a hopeful person. You see, the Christian can be sad and can be struggling and can be anxious, but the Christian cannot be hopeless. Why? Because you know where the race ends. It ends in victory. Your story ends in victory. It's why it's okay to accept the reality of who you are because your story ends in victory. So you can be at times sad and anxious and struggling, but you are always full of hope. As we sang in that song, sometimes we don't know what God is going to do, but he has never failed, and he never will. So we need to normalize all of who we are. You see, when you pray these prayers of lament, here's how you're praying to God. I will wait, Lord. I will wait. 
These are I will wait prayers. I will share with you how I feel. I know that you care for me and I will wait and so I will have a prayer of hallelujah at the end. Because I'm a real person with real emotions, but I'm hopeful. This, I believe, is convictional living. And so here's, one I, here's my, my charge to you and my charge to me is that we burn the books. Burn the books of normalizing positive emotions only. Burn the books of these fake prayers that are not real. Burn the books of having to present yourself one way and not just be honest. Burn the books of not living out of conviction. Burn the books of thinking that your faith just happens inside of these buildings, these walls, and doesn't happen out there. Burn the books of not believing that God could use a church like this to bring revival in a city that would go from Miami to the rest of the world. It happened. It could happen with you. It could happen with me. It could happen with our church. It could happen if we believe God's word and we live out of conviction. Amen? Will you pray with me? God, we pray and we come before you confessing that at times we doubt you, that we just play religion. We go through the motions. We struggle to believe that you can do the things that you have done in the past, but you have never failed us and you never will, and you have a great plan for your church because it is your church. And so, God, we pray that we would reject and challenge this cultural spirituality of believing that everything has to be positive all the time and that we can't just be real people with real struggles and real sadness at times. But would you reinforce in us that though we are dynamic as people, both positive and negative, we are people of hope. Because our race ends in victory. We know what lies beyond. It is an eternity with no sadness and no tears and no anxiety and no frustrations. It is a life of perfection with you and with one another. So allow us, God, through the strength of your spirit to run out of these walls this week and to bring our faith into real interactions with real people and allow us to break down the walls that we put up. Unlock our heart. Will we be people that pray prayers of faith, prayers that are real, prayers of lament if we need to? And allow your love to transform. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.